Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear from a broadcaster that loves to share the unusual things that can happen at a baseball game, like a wild bull on the field, a fly ball caught by a train conductor, and a lady fan being ejected by the umpire. And there is this woman behind the first base dugout that is just bellowing at him in this deep smokers-type voice, this angry woman yelling at him all game as he's the first base umpire. And she's only one of a dozen fans in the park, so her voice is carrying. She says late in the game, if I was married to you, I'd put poison in your drink. (laughs) And Meriwether turns and faces her and said, if I was married to you, I'd drink it. Welcome to Live for the Ballpark, sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball, from the sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is baseball broadcaster and now author, Tim Haggerty. Tim Haggerty, thanks so much for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Yeah, thank you, John. Tim's just written a book. And it's an interesting book. It's called Tales from the Dugout, a thousand and one humorous, inspirational, and wild anecdotes from minor league baseball. So, Tim, before you get into the book, which I know we're going to talk a lot about, I want to find out a little bit about you and your background. What led you to this point? How did you fall in love with baseball? Yeah, I think like a lot of your guests, it did start at childhood. I think my earliest baseball memory, I was five or six and watching the local TV news and they showed a highlight of this guy doing backflips on the field, on the turf in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm told, I said to my parents, who is this Aussie guy? Aussie Smith, of course, who I know you are very familiar with from living in St. Louis. Very much. And I was just fascinated by who is this guy doing backflips on the field? And even though I grew up in Massachusetts and was not necessarily a Cardinals fan, uh, he was always the guy that I collected his baseball cards. And those highlight real plays, he was always on This Week in Baseball. And Aussie thinks my name is Mike. My name is Tim, but Ozzy thinks my name is Mike. <laughs> I'll make this uh, side story quick, but in 2006, I was the broadcaster for the AA Mobile Bay Bears, and I was at the winter meetings in Orlando, and Ozzy Smith was the guest speaker at one of the banquets at the winter meetings. And I hated doing this, but I went to the general manager of our team and I said, is there any way you can get me a ticket to that? And he did. And afterwards, Ozzy's kind of milling around, and he approaches us, and I was with a coworker named Mike. And I said, Ozzy, I'm Tim, and this is Mike. But midway through my introduction, Ozzy kind of got grabbed by somebody else. So he was looking at two different people at once. So Ozzy Smith looked me in the eye and said, hi, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, (laughs) My all-time favorite player. And I, of course, could not correct him. But I think that was maybe my earliest memory. And I have always just been captivated by it. I grew up in Massachusetts. I can remember the last day of school in first grade was the first day I ever went to Fenway Park. And just that glowing green grass. Um, and really that has never stopped. Uh, as a kid, I would collect cards and then I had a phase where I went to Fenway and tried to catch foul balls as a kid. So I had my spots for batting practice and there's always kind of been something specific about the game that I was into for a couple of years. I was really into taking photos. Now, of course I broadcast games and, and this book became that too, became a, a side passion of digging up crazy stories from minor league history. So you're currently the uh, play-by-play announcer for the El Paso Chihuahuas. That's right. The Padres AAA team, a beautiful stadium here. And you've been El Paso Sportscaster of the Year three years? I think so. Yeah, Uh, yeah, that was uh, (laughs) a great honor that a local publication put me in. And um, we're really lucky that El Paso was without 
professional affiliated baseball for a while. And this beautiful downtown stadium was built for the 2014 season. And people are just so into it. El Paso is a big city. There's 700,000 people here, but it's a big city that's not really near any other big cities. So they are so into anything local here. And, and we're the beneficiary of that. I have a friend of mine who grew up in El Paso, and he said one of the interesting things about El Paso is people are from there because you don't you don't go anywhere else because it's not close to anything. That's a great point. I've noticed that. Some other places I lived, I lived in Tucson, Arizona, when the Padres AAA team was there. A great city. But one thing I noticed about Arizona is nobody's grandparents were from there. Everyone was always from Chicago or, or Florida or somewhere else. And I think that really helps El Paso. People here will talk about going to the old stadium, Cohen Stadium, or the older stadium than that, Dudley Field. For generations, everyone is from here. And I think there's such a pride for El Paso, maybe even more so than other cities, when it comes to passion for their city. Well, I think one of the things you and I share in our love for baseball is the love for storytelling. And of course, you in your role as a play-by-play announcer, that's, that's in essence what you do. You are a storyteller, and that's the nature of this book. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of this book. Where did this idea come to you? Yeah, it started 10 years ago. In 2012, I was looking um, through some newspaper archives for something else, and I came across this story from 1887 in Austin, Texas. A Texas League game was delayed when a wild bull ran on the field, (laughs) and the bull is kicking up dust. It knocked down a fence. Fans are shrieking. And the funny thing, just, just like the style of newspaper articles back then, just kind of on a side note at the bottom, they wrote, and the game did not continue. Like, oh, oh, you think so? Like a wild bull on the field. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's a good reason to postpone a game. But I remember that particular story thinking, well, I do this for a living, and I've never heard that story. I think the odds are baseball fans haven't heard that story either. So it made me realize, I just found there were literally hundreds of stories that I don't think people know about that are crazy like that. So the book goes all the way back to the 19th century. And all the way to the present day, I tell stories about how Nashville has a 4,200-foot guitar-shaped scoreboard at their current stadium. So a lot of modern stories as well. In the book, you share about a fly ball that disappeared. (laughs) Yeah, in 1978, a AA Eastern League game in Jersey City, New Jersey, the Bristol Red Sox are the visiting team. Ricky Henderson played for Jersey City, Wade Boggs for Bristol, and a right-handed hitter hit a fly ball to right field. That disappeared. And a couple of years ago, I just became fascinated by this story. I tried to contact players who were on the field. I even contacted an Eastern League umpire from that year. And I heard from a fan who was at the game. Oh, wow. And the fan said it was the most bizarre thing that anybody had ever seen. It was a clear night. This was not like getting lost in the fog. It did not go over the fence. It did not land on the field. I mean, literally, a ball was hit. And people on the field, people in the stands, have no idea where it went. And... The umpires got together. They were understandably confused on what to do. So they called it a double. So now there's precedent. If tonight somewhere a fly ball is hit and it doesn't come down, it's a double. <laughs> <laughs> you can look it up. Yes. You also share the story about a pitcher who got locked in the bathroom. Yeah. Out of the 1,001 stories in the book, only about a dozen are from games that I witnessed. But this was one of them. In oh, 2007, okay. I was the broadcaster for AA Mobile. Uh, We were in Montgomery, Alabama, and there was a pitcher, Matt Elliott, who allowed a game-tying home run in the eighth inning. And after that inning, he got so upset, he went into the dugout bathroom and he slammed the door. But he slammed it so hard that he jarred the lock and he locked himself in the bathroom. 
He's still the pitcher in the game. He's still in the game. So after the top of the ninth inning, yeah, the top of the ninth inning ends, his teammates take the field, and there's no one on the mound. So I'm sitting there in the press box befuddled by this because it's not as if there's an injury. There's no new pitcher warming up. So something very unusual is happening. The manager, uh, the longtime major leaguer, Brett Butler, was the manager, and he is literally scratching his head talking to the umpire, wondering what to do. He had to bring in a new pitcher because Elliot was still locked in the bathroom. He was locked in the bathroom for 40 minutes after the game ended. And this poor guy, Sports Illustrated, did a little article about it. The New York Times did an article about it. This guy became known as the pitcher who locked himself in the bathroom during the game. Oh, my gosh. And you were there. Yeah, yeah. That's certainly one of and maybe the very strangest delay I've ever had to fill time during. Pitcher locked in bathroom delay. (laughs) How far into it did you know what had happened? Yeah, that's a good point. I, for minutes, did not. And this is 2007, so it was before we were sending text messages or had emails on our phones, at least on a, a widespread basis. So somebody actually came in with a sticky note and handed it to me, and it just said, Pitcher locked in bathroom. And I looked at him and thought, like, can I put this on the air? Can I announce this? Is this some kind of joke? And the guy was nodding his head. He was saying, no, it's true. So, yeah, I probably filled time for five or six minutes. And then once the new pitcher came in, that's when I was handed this note. And I, I still have that tape in my archives as a, a funny broadcast that I've saved. Oh, my gosh. In the early 80s, I lived in St. Louis, and I got to uh, hear the wonderful Jack Buck. And he would tell these wonderful stories. And when there was a rain delay, he would have all of his buddies from the newspaper come in. And they would just be sitting there telling all these wonderful baseball stories. And it was almost as though I didn't want the game to start again because they were filling the time. And you must have felt like that. You must have felt like, okay, who can I get over here to fill the time until the pitcher gets out of the bathroom? I totally agree with you. I mean, that I love that part of the job. You're hanging out in press boxes and and things happen. I remember what you just said reminded me, I was in the Nashville press box in 2017, maybe. And do you remember the umpire, Chuck Merriweather, who just passed a couple of years ago? Mm-hmm. Great guy. And he worked as an umpire supervisor. So he was there evaluating AAA umpires. And he would tell this story that when he was coming up, before he was a major league umpire, he was an umpire in the single A Midwest League. And there was this woman behind the first base dugout that is just bellowing at him in this this deep smoker's type voice, this angry woman yelling at him all game as he's the first base umpire. And she said to him late in the game, and she's only one of a dozen fans in the park, so her voice is carrying. She says late in the game, if I was married to you, I'd put poison in your drink. And Meriwether turns and faces her and said, if I was married to you, I'd drink it. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you're right. It's, it's like those the Jack Buck story there. It's like those breaks in the action where these experienced people in baseball let their guard down and start telling crazy stories. Uh, a number of stories in the book originated that way where a scout would say, yeah, one time I was playing and um, I remember the Toledo at Charleston story I tell. In 1982, Randy Bush hit a 200-mile home run. He hit a home run that went soaring over the right field fence in Charleston, West Virginia, and it landed in a moving coal train that didn't stop for hours later. Uh, That's a great source. And, you know, that combined with the gift of sites like newspapers.com is you can hear a story, you can grab a couple of the details, and then through newspapers.com, you can actually find the exact date and location of some of these stories that maybe that scout didn't know the precise details on. 
You know, these unusual plays you see at the ballpark can also introduce you to rules that you really weren't even aware of and maybe create some interesting trivia questions. For instance, in one game I was working a few years ago, I saw Miguel Sano, who's now with the Twins. He hit an enormous home run over the left field clubhouse, and he immediately began jawing and pointing his finger at the first base dugout based upon some previous shenanigans that hit batters. Well, the home plate umpire didn't care for that, and he threw Sano out of the game before he even reached first base. Well, both managers were ejected, and there was quite a scene when Cano completed his home run trot and arrived at home plate with both ejected managers and the umpires still going at it. So I learned the answer to a trivia question. Can a run be scored by a player after he's been ejected from the game? And the answer is yes. <laughs> I love that you were there for that. That story is in my book. Oh, and, is it really? Um, I love that. Yeah, he was ejected mid-home run trot. That's right. I love that story. And and you'll like this one. This is another Florida State League story. Uh, a couple years earlier, I think it was at Bradenton, uh, the former Pirates infielder Carlos Garcia was the manager. And there was this sliding play by a Lakeland outfielder. And the runners are moving, but they're they're thinking, was it caught? Was it not caught? I don't know if I should be advancing or not. So the runners advanced. And Garcia is arguing this. Meanwhile, the fielder throws it in and they double off two runners. And there was a manager being ejected while a triple play was unfolding. Um, Yeah. Another mid-play ejection. I was at a game one time at uh, City Field that began with an inside-the-park home run and ended with an unassisted triple play. Two of the rarest plays possible that were book-ending a game. But I think the one you just said about getting ejected during a triple play probably is even rarer than that. <laughs> was that, I'm trying to think of triple plays at City Field, Eric Brentlett maybe? Was that Philadelphia, so. the game you saw? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, sure was. Now you tell another story in your book that actually happened at our ballpark in the last couple of years where a foul ball set off the fire alarm. <laughs> yeah, 2021, a Jupiter Hammerheads player hits a foul ball and it smashed into the fire alarm panel on um, the side of the concourse yep. there where you would enter and exit the concourse and the ballpark had to be evacuated. Yep. And this got some news coverage and the player, um, Cameron Barstad, I think is his name. You would right. know, signed a ball for the general manager of the team and, and wrote his apology on the ball as well that they had to eject him. Um, I just told that story the other day on a different podcast and heard from a Padre scout. And he said, I was at that game oh <laughs> he was there for the fire alarm ejection. Or, excuse me, fire alarm delay, I should say. That's right. I called a game in Tacoma in 2018, and there was a fire alarm, and they had to evacuate the stadium. And when the fire alarm goes off, it also nullifies the sound system because they want to make sure that is the only thing going through the sound system. Mm -hmm. Well, they determined that there was not any reason for a fire alarm, so the fans were let back in, but the sound system is still down. And the Tacoma public address announcer, Randy McNair, just said, the heck with it. I'm going to be the PA announcer anyway, and started bellowing names as they were coming up to bat with just his voice. He would stick his head out the window and decided to announce anyway. Like the old days, if he'd had a megaphone, he right. would have done it that way, right? <laughs> right. That's funny. That reminds me of another situation that we had when the fire alarm went off. And at that time, there was a, a recording of an announcer that came on asking people to leave the stadium. And we'd never heard it before. We had no, those of us working the game, we had no idea where it was coming from or what it was doing or what had happened. And it turned out that the light sensor in the electric room had filled with dead bugs. 
and it had, it had blocked the light going off, and this was what happened. And that's that's how we learned that the light sensor is going to set off the fire alarm. Wow. Yeah. That reminds me of 2017. There was a AAA game in Salt Lake City, and players who were there told me that they actually had to delay the game because the lights were blurry, and they looked up, and it was packed with these swarms of bugs. Oh, yeah. And there were so many bugs, it was actually darkening the lights, and they had to have a brief delay until the bugs flew away. You also have stories in here about announcers, bat boys, mascots, organists, and trainers getting ejected. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, you'll like this one with your announcing career. In 2021, the Hudson Valley Renegades gave away a bobblehead for their character of an announcer, Rick Zolzer, and he was ejected from a game once because he would make comments about the umpire on the public address announcer's mic and at one point called them clowns. Mm. And one of the umpires turned around and tossed him out of the game. Mm. In 2002, at a New York Penn League game in New Jersey, the New Jersey Cardinals, it was brownie troop night. And one of the brownie troop moms got so upset at a call that she climbed over the fence, ran on the field, <laughs> and started yelling at the first base umpire. She not only was ejected, but was arrested too. <laughs> so beware for the brownie troop moms out there. Yeah, the brownie troop of all things. Uh, she was... well, you mentioned the Bat Boy. In 1984, the Portland Beavers had a 14-year-old Bat Boy, Sam Morris. And the manager of that team was Lee Elia, who, as you know, was known for his temper in the major leagues he and the sure minor was. leagues. Elia gets ejected from a game, and he threw a chair on the field. So Elia is back in the clubhouse. And this umpire is thinking, I am not going to pick up for this ejected manager. So the umpire turns to the Bat Boy and says, pick up that chair. And the Bat Boy shook his head, nope. He's stuck by <laughs> stuck by his manager, refused to pick up the chair, so the umpire ejected the bat boy. <laughs> so Lee Ely is sitting in there, ejected in his office, and the bat boy walks in. He says, what are you doing in here? And he said, they threw me out, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How about the mascot being kicked out? Yeah, so in uh, 1993, the Memphis Chickasaws had this mascot that wore a loincloth. It was a Native American-style mascot, and the mascot got so upset at an umpire that he turned around, lifted up the loincloth, and bent down to show his backside to the umpire and the umpire didn't like that and threw the mascot out of the game. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> you mentioned the organist as well yeah. in uh, 1985 in Clearwater down in your neck of the woods in the Florida state league. Uh, there was an organist, Wilbur snap and he played three blind mice on his organ mm-hmm. and the umpire didn't like that faced the press box and ejected the organist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember when that happened. You're right. Well, these are such great stories. Tell us again about the book. Uh, Tell us the name and how people can get it. Yeah, thank you. It's called Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. And it's available now for pre-order on Amazon and uh, wherever books are sold online. And then it'll be sold in person in bookstores beginning in March. And this is not the first baseball book you've written. You also wrote Root for the Home Team, Minor League Baseball's most off-the-wall names and the stories behind them. So what prompted that idea? Yeah, the first team that I announced for was the Idaho Falls Chuckers. And so many people would ask me, what is a chucker? Where does that name come from? A chucker is a pheasant-like bird. And it made me think about, I want to go buy a book that has the origin story behind a lot of crazy team names. Uh, And that really didn't exist. So, you know, there have been encyclopedias, of course, that listed past team names. But as far as one that would pick out the craziest ones, tell the origin story, maybe have some team photos, some logos. Uh, So that became my side project for seven or eight years. 
I'd never written a book before. I didn't know how it went from my laptop into a bookstore. So I actually bought How to Get Your Book Published for Dummies, <laughs> which was a great book because it uh, it taught me how to write a proposal and how to pitch these publishers. Uh, and that book came out in 2012. Both of my books are through Cider Mill Press, which is a, a great company that does highly visual books. That's why I really wanted to target them for the, the new book of 1001 Minor League Stories. They do a great job with illustrations. Uh, so that's going to be a fun feature of this book. It's going to have some cartoonish illustrations of a lot of these crazy stories that happened. Well, baseball is the game of storytelling. And Tim Haggerty, you're obviously a great storyteller. Thank you for being on Life at the Ballpark. Well, thank you. I can tell from your voice, you're uh, very experienced on air and behind the mic. So uh, no surprise there and good to hear your voice. Good talking to you, Tim. Thank you, John. Tune in each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Life at the Ballpark is produced by Jim Governale. Project manager is Paul Adams. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of Life at the Ballpark. <laughs>